All right, if you're at home, you can be seated because we're going to read Scripture a little bit differently today. And uh, I don't want you to have to stand up for six minutes straight. If you're here, you can be seated too. Excuse me. You guys go ahead and be seated. I don't know about you all, but one of the experiences of living through this pandemic and specifically of not being able to be together for church has made me realize how grateful I am and thankful uh, for the role of the Holy Spirit in the life of the church. Um, Aaron was talking before we got started about how asynchronously our voices have been joined together in these last 10, 11, 12 months, Um, and yet um, how the Holy Spirit is able, uh, in the name of Jesus, to bring our praises before the Father um, in a unison that is sweet to Him. I want to remind you, as your pastor of something, do you know and do you remember that your prayers, we are told from Scripture, rise before God like sweet incense, that He delights in hearing from you? He does. And to participate in this worship service will be at times to drop your head and pray. And here's another great thing about being online. The people who are sitting in this sanctuary, of who they're only, you know, a small handful, they can't hit the pause button. I'm not going to stop every time they raise their hand and say, the Spirit's moving in my life. But for the rest of you, you can hit the pause button. And you can just stop and pray. And that's what participation looks like when we come before God and worship. That's what it looks like for us to repent in real time, in real time, to be able to go to Him. And I want you to know that's the goal of this service. So will you join me in prayer before we enter into the text of Acts 27? Let's pray. Father, we are your people, and we come to you not because we're good, And not because we've got it together this week. And not because our anxiety level has finally dropped low enough that we feel like we can approach you. We come to you now in the sanity of this worship service because you have told us that we ought to pray, always pray, and never give up. And so, Father, we come before you and we even pray on behalf of the communities that you have called us to. You told your people when you sent them to Babylon that they were supposed to pray for the places where you sent them. And you said that their welfare was going to be tied up with the welfare of the communities where you sent your people. And Father, you're the same God today as yesterday. And so we pray on behalf of Newton and Wellesley, of Waltham and of Lexington. Father, on behalf of Walpole and beyond, that you would be made great, that your name would be made great, that women and men would worship you. Father, I pray for the women and men who have been attending Christ the King Church Newton online from afar. Father, I pray that you would draw them to yourself even now. Father, you know our hearts. Some of our families have been split up this week with children going to faraway places. Some of our families have been united this week with parents and children coming home. Father, some of us are so glad just to hear the voices of our fellow brothers and sisters during times of prayer or Bible study. But you know 
our need. And we pray that you would meet us in that place of need today. And Father, lastly, we thank you for your word. We thank you that your word is a sure foundation from which we can look into this world with eyes wide open, both at its beauty and at its brokenness. And long that not only would your name be made great, but you would do what you have promised. Wipe away every tear from our eyes. Remove death and dying. Take away pain and suffering. Bring reconciliation. Father, as our world heaves with grief and shudders with pain, teach us from your word how we, your people, might enter into it the way that you did, Jesus, all the while proclaiming your name. We're asking a lot that you would be with us. Father, please draw your people into worship. In your name now, in Christ's name we pray, amen. All right, we're going to look at Acts 27, and I've changed from that order of worship that you have in front of you. We're not just going to look at verses 13 through 44. I'm going to read the entirety of Acts 27, but not all at one time, so don't worry. You don't have to fall asleep. Um, but you do need to go get a Bible because I think it'll be super helpful for you to have it in front of you. I want you to know that as a child of the 70s, it's impossible for me to read this text and not start humming the theme song of Gilligan's Island in my mind. It really is. This is the voyage of Paul to Rome. And when I read it, I just hear this. Just sit right back and you'll hear a tale, a tale of a fateful trip that started from this tropic port aboard this tiny ship. That show, which ran for three seasons in the 1960s and which was already in syndication by the time we discovered it, quickly became one of our favorite afternoon rituals. Entertained by Gilligan and the Skipper at David Bennett's house because David Bennett had the color TV in our neighborhood knowing that I had to be home no more than two minutes after that show ended for dinner. But I want to say of this Acts 27 that surely Luke has included this particular story for Theophilus and God has recorded it for the church throughout the millennia for more than simply advancing the Pauline narrative, for more than just entertainment. Rather, I believe that this story has been given to us at this point in Acts for great encouragement. Indeed, Paul takes great pains while relaying this story to make sure we understand that this is so much more than entertainment, so much more than simply an historic account of Paul, of how Paul, Luke, and Aristarchus ended up in Rome. Just like Noah and Jonah, the other two biblically recorded events of God's saving purposes played out on the high seas, this account of Paul's voyage to Rome, shipwreck and all, reminds us of several pertinent and timely truths that I believe are applicable, uniquely applicable to our current historical moment. One, 
God's use of natural phenomenon to demonstrate his sovereign control. We're going to look at that. Two, a second, is God's pattern of tying his people's welfare and well-being together with the well-being of others. And then three, God's pursuit of the individual, even within the entire ordeal. Let's take a turn at each of these as we read this passage together. I'm going to read verses 1 through 20 now, all right? Read with me if you're at home. And when it was decided that we should sail for Italy, they delivered Paul and some of the prisoners to a centurion of the Augustan cohort named Julius. And embarking in a ship to Adramithium, which was about to sail to the ports along the coast of Asia, we put out to sea, accompanied by Aristarchus, a Macedonian from Thessalonica. The next day we put in at Sidon, and Julius treated Paul kindly, and gave him leave to go to his friends and be cared for. And putting out to sea from there, we sailed under the lee of Cyprus, because the winds were against us. And when we had sailed across the open sea, along the coast of Cilicia and Pamphylia, we came to Myra and Lycia. There the centurion found a ship of Alexandria sailing for Italy and put us on board. We sailed slowly for a number of days and arrived with difficulty off Nidus. And as the wind did not allow us to go farther, we sailed under the lee of Crete off Salome. Coasting along it with difficulty, we came to a place called Fair Havens, near near which was a city of Lycia. Since much time had passed and the voyage was now dangerous because even the fast was already over, Paul advised them, saying, Sir, I perceive that the voyage will be with injury and much loss, not only to the cargo and the ship, but also our lives. But the centurion paid more attention to the pilot and to the owner of the ship than to what Paul said. And because the harbor was not suitable to spend the winter in, the majority decided to put out to sea from there on the chance that somehow they could reach Phoenix, a harbor of Crete facing both southwest and northwest, and spend the winter there. Now when the south wind blew gently, supposing that they had obtained their purpose, they weighed anchor and sailed along Crete close to the shore. But soon a tempestuous wind, called a northeaster, struck down from the land. And when the ship was caught and could not face the wind, we gave way to it and were driven along running under the lee of, an, of a small island called Cauda, we managed with difficulty to secure the ship's boat. After hoisting it up, they used supports to undergird the ship. Then, fearing that they would run aground on the Sirtis, they lowered the gear, and thus they were driven along. Since we were violently storm-tossed, they began the next day to jettison the cargo. And on the third day, They threw the ship's tackle overboard with their own hands when neither sun nor stars appeared for many days and no small tempest lay on us. All hope of our being saved was at last abandoned. In the beginning of this first section, everything points to the Romans being in control. Even Paul seems to wonder if he has misunderstood God's plans. Luke has already recorded for us 
since chapters nine, since chapter 19 that Paul understood it to be a divine imperative that he bear witness to the resurrected Jesus in Rome regarding all that he had seen concerning the resurrected and reigning Jesus. He was reminded again by Jesus himself in chapter 23. And now in our passage, he's reminded a third time. There in verse 24, you must stand before Caesar, the angel tells Paul. Why did Luke record three episodes of the same revelation? I believe that the key to understanding this is to allow Peter, or excuse me, to allow Paul to be human. In both chapter 23 and in today's passage, the necessity that Paul appear in Rome is introduced by words of encouragement. Take courage and don't be afraid, respectively. In chapter 23, Paul narrowly escapes death thanks only to the forceful intervention of the Roman official Claudius Lysias. And he receives his encouraging vision the following night. In our passage, the vision of the angel of the Lord immediately follows verse 20, which we just read, where Luke records, when neither sun nor stars appeared for many days, and no small tempest lay upon us, all hope of being saved of our being saved, was at last abandoned. Luke uses his personal pronouns very specifically. I believe we are to understand that Paul, Luke, and Aristarchus were also convinced that they would die at sea with the others. For Paul, encouragement to believe that God was in control was necessary. Now pick your head up. Isn't that good news for you and me to hear today? But you might say, hey, look, I'm not Paul. I haven't been given a vision about my future, nor have I been visited by an angel, not to mention Jesus himself. You're right. You and I aren't Paul. But I want to remind you that Paul isn't the focus of this story. God is. And the Bible states that God is the same yesterday, today, and forever. As we sing of God, there is no shadow of turning with thee. Thou changest not, thy compassions they fail not. As thou hast been, thou forever will be. The Bible also emphasizes God's control over the sea. Remember Jonah who sailed from Joppa? Guess what? Joppa is within 30 miles north of Caesarea where Paul sets off. Remember God pursuing Jonah with the storm, the great tempest? God's promise to Paul in verse 24 is encouraging precisely because he is in control of the seas and the storms and even of this pandemic in which we are living. I want to ask you a question. Are you teetering on the precipice of abandoning all hope? Have your anxieties about the future driven you away from God rather than toward him? Are you struggling to pray these days? Does a vaccine represent your greatest hope? Do you feel like your life is accurately illustrated 
by this tiny boat driven on the seas without any control, lacking direction. At some point today, it doesn't have to be now, but at some point today, I want you to look at those maps in the back of your Bibles, all right? And one of them is going to be entitled Paul's Voyage to Rome. And as I studied that map this week, I was struck by two thoughts. First, Malta, which is the island that they end up shipwrecking next to and to which they swim so that they might be saved. Malta, this island, is tiny. Any mariner who would have, would have to have a super precise ability to get there from hundreds of miles away on the sea. And second, it's more or less the most direct route they could have taken from Crete to Rome. It's unbelievable. You got to look at it. Luke is clearly communicating God's seafaring abilities. And I want to ask you a question in hearing this. Are you emboldened to say with the hymn writer, Edward Hopper, Jesus, Savior, pilot me over life's tempestuous sea? And if you are willing to pray that prayer, we actually do share a deep commonality with Paul. And it's found in our second section, verses 21 through 38. Read it with me and listen. Listen for be encouraged and to take heart. Because Luke wants Theophilus to be encouraged and take heart. And I believe that he wants the same for us. So listen to these verses. Verse 21. Since they had been without food for a long time, Paul stood up among them and said, Men, you have listened. You should have listened to me and not have set sail from Crete and incurred this injury and loss. Yet now I urge you to take heart, for there will be no loss of life among you, but only of the ship. For this very night there stood before me an angel of God to whom I belong and whom I worship. And he said, do not be afraid, Paul. You must stand before Caesar. And behold, God has granted you all those who sail with you. So take heart, men, for I have faith in God that it will be exactly as I have been told. But we must run aground on some island. When the 14th night had come, as we were being driven across the Adriatic Sea, about midnight, the sailors suspected that they were nearing land. So they took a sounding and found 20 fathoms. A little farther on, they took a sounding again and found 15 fathoms. And fearing that we might run on the rocks, they let down four anchors from the stern and prayed for the day to come. And as the sailors were seeking to escape from the ship, and had lowered the ship's boat into the sea under pretense of laying out anchors from the bow, Paul said this to the centurion and to the soldiers, unless these men stay in the ship, you cannot be saved. Then the soldiers cut away the ropes of the ship's boat and let it go. Verse 21 comes at the height of Paul's discouragement that we read in verse 20. When Paul was greatly encouraged by this angelic visitor that speaks to him in verse 23. And Paul does everything that he can to bring everyone on that boat into his reality. Paul says a few key things here. First, 
he says, because I'm encouraged, you should also be encouraged. He says twice in verse 22 and in verse 25, take heart is what he says. The grounds for encouragement rest in the promise that was given Paul that all who sailed with him would be saved as well as he would be saved. There in verse 24, Paul immediately shared this good news. Secondly, he said that it was an imperative that the ship run aground on some island. We see that in verse 26, right? Apparently, this had been revealed to Paul, possibly as an assurance that their narrow escape would not simply be by chance or by some last-minute maneuvering of the sailors. This ship would be destroyed, but the people would not. The unlikeliness of this scenario is played out and helps that the unlikeliness uh, of this outcome explains why the sailors attempted to abandon the ship at the last minute in verse 30. But Paul warns Julius, the centurion, and the soldiers that they were all in this together. They would not be saved unless they all stayed aboard a ship doomed for destruction. There was only one way to safety, one way for Paul and one way for all who were on board. And Paul was calling on them to entrust themselves solely to God. They would have to put themselves in God's hands. And Paul encourages them by using these words, this is the God to whom I belong. Paul shares his greatest hope with these guys. He shares that he has already been ransomed by God from death by the blood of his son, Jesus Christ. And he therefore belongs to God. And if God had loved him to that extent already, he was convinced that God's love wouldn't fail in this experience either. Paul said, he is the one whom I worship and I have faith that it will be exactly as I have been told. It kind of makes you stop and go, wow. In this time when all of us are talking about where our hope lies, we see Paul so clearly articulate his hope. And the question that has to come to us is with whom have we shared our hope this clearly? There is only one way through the storm of God's judgment. Just like Noah and the ark, Jesus, the one who would be destroyed for us, is the provision for all humanity to be brought through the greatest of storms that is yet to come. He was destroyed by God's wrath so that all who trust in him would be saved. If God has already given you this assurance and he is the one to whom you belong, you can have confidence that whatever comes, it will be exactly according to his will. I wanna ask you this question. Have you had a hard time praying as your life has been upended in these last 11 weeks? I want you to know to the extent that you have had a difficulty drawing near to God, it is his compassion that is demonstrating to you that your hope is rooted somewhere else. But in this reality of Paul's that he belongs to God, 
It is the key to us understanding why we can draw near to God, even when we don't understand how our lives will unfold. You might say, that sure that, that doesn't assure me of a lack of suffering, or maybe even of death, though. And I want to say that's, that's very true. But it does assure us of something much greater. It does assure us that we will never be separated from the God who loves us. You might ask, Bradley, how can you be so sure of that? And I think that's where Luke points us. He points us to this next answer in the last section before the shipwreck. Read verses 33 through 38 with me. 33 says this, And day was about to dawn. Paul urged them all to take some food, saying, Today is the 14th day that you have continued in suspense and without food, having taken nothing. Therefore, I urge you to take some food, for it will give you strength. For not a hair is to perish from the head of any of you. And when he had said these things, he took bread. And giving thanks to God in the presence of all, he broke it and began to eat. Then they all were encouraged and ate some food themselves. We were in all 276 persons in the ship. And when they had eaten enough, they lightened the ship, throwing out the wheat into the sea. This was no tiny boat. This was a massive sailing vessel of the Roman fleet bringing grain from Egypt to Rome. And we see here in this final section, we are reminded that God always deals with us as individuals, even in the midst of something that is so much larger. And listen, I am saying that to us God is dealing with us, church, in the midst of something that is so much larger. He does so in this shipwreck. And today for you and me is no different. Did you notice in verse 21 that Luke had mentioned that they, not we, had been without food for a long time? And then again in verse 33, Paul points directly to that. Then Paul tells them to take some food. And he says this, for it will give them strength or it will be for their deliverance. And finally, he assures them that not a hair will perish from the head of any one of you. From the lips of a Hebrew scholar like Paul, these clues can only point to one reference of the Old Testament, 1 Samuel 14. You and I would be well served to spend the evening looking together at that chapter in that Old Testament book, 1 Samuel 14. But suffice it to say that in that chapter, King Saul, who, in the midst of a battle, takes a rash vow not to eat, and by so doing, exalting self-effort, is contrasted with his son Jonathan, who rather entrusts himself to the deliverance. Of the Lord. Saul and those with him, because they didn't eat, they grew fatigued. But Jonathan, because he ate, was strengthened, reinvigorated. And it is in that passage where we first read in the Bible that not a hair will fall from the head of Jonathan. Paul seems to be calling anyone on that ship 
who made a vow not to eat to turn from that vow. And instead of entrusting themselves to that vow, to entrust themselves to God. He highlights their hunger and encourages them to eat something. He assures them that not a hair from the head of any of you will perish. He then blesses the meal, giving thanks for the gift of deliverance being from God as he gives thanks to the food. Remember, he said that food, it would deliver them. It would be, he literally says, their salvation. And then after he gives thanks for it in verse 35, Luke records that all who were there were encouraged and they ate some food themselves. Their salvation would come not from their own vows, but rather from a covenant-making, vow-keeping God who graciously acts toward those who entrust themselves to him. For Luke and Theophilus, the only other person to mention this phrase, not a hair from your head will perish, was Jesus himself in Luke's gospel, chapter 21. There Jesus uses the phrase to assure his followers of eternal life, even though some of them would be put to death here on earth. Jesus' focus in that phrase was on the eternal relationship that he himself had secured with the Father for all who would entrust themselves to him. The Father who loves them. Isn't it amazing that gratitude is the mechanism by which Paul calls others to entrust themselves to God? Gratitude, giving thanks, demands some concept of receipt, of dependence. How have you been doing with gratitude during these days of quarantine? Have you been thankful to God specifically for all that he has provided, even in the midst of very uncertain times? Have you remembered that these present sufferings aren't worth comparing to the glory that is to be revealed in us as sons of God, when Jesus returns. It is this type of gratitude that sets our eyes on things in heaven instead of the things of earth. Listen to how the passage ends. Now, when it was day, they did not recognize the land, but they noticed a bay with a beach on which they planned, if possible, to run the ship ashore. So they cast off the anchors and left them in the sea. At the same time, loosening the ropes that tied the rudders, then hoisting the foresail to the wind, they made for the beach. But striking a reef, they ran the vessel aground. The bow stuck and remained immovable, and the stern was being broken up by the surf. The soldier's plan was to kill the prisoners, lest any should swim away and escape. But the centurion, wishing to save Saul, kept them from carrying out their plan. He ordered those who could swim to jump overboard first and make for land and the rest on planks or on pieces of the ship so that it was that all were brought safely to land. Look at the way this ends. Not one, not one of 276 persons was lost. 
It reminded me of one final illustration, and that of Ernest Shackleton, the captain of a ship called Endurance, that in the 19-teens attempted to sail through Antarctica. And after being trapped in the ice for over a year without moving, they then set off on a 1,200-mile journey across ice flows to an island where they hoped to find help. The amazing thing about that story is that Shackleton arrived. And when he arrived, the people wept because they had given up on him And they said, there is no way you should be here. How did you make it? And Shackleton shared. And he said, the way that I did it was I took the weakest of our party and I kept them with me. Well, I want you to know, Jesus did infinitely better than Shackleton. Because he didn't take the weakest of us and keep us with him. He took the deadest of us and kept us with him and he delivered us to the father and not one of us has been lost not one and even as he went to the cross he proclaimed to the father I haven't lost one father of those whom you have given me you guys Why can we enter into the suffering of our current situation with hope? Because Jesus is our pilot. And we know how to pray. Jesus, Savior, pilot me over life's tempestuous sea. Please pray with me.